Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, art and social media. Now the art world's gone digital, how should it engage with audiences online? We speak to the so-called king of museum memes to find out. No museum or gallery in the 21st century can be without the various social media platforms to amplify its message and increasingly to deliver exclusive content to growing global audiences. This week we speak to Adam Kazari, who's in charge of the Royal Academy in London's social media channels and has created numerous viral moments there and elsewhere. We also speak to the US-born, London-based artist Rita Keegan, who, had it not been for the coronavirus, would currently have a show at the South London Gallery. What's it like, as an artist, to have a major moment in your career put on hold? And in the latest in our series, Lonely Works, in which we explore art behind the doors of museums closed due to COVID-19, Julia Payton-Jones talks about Leonardo da Vinci's drawing A Cloudburst of Material Possessions, also known as The Reign of Tools, from about 1506 to 1512. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up to the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, Art Market Eye. Now, how does a museum maintain and entertain its audience when its doors are closed? This has been the challenge of digital and social media teams at institutions worldwide since lockdown began. The usage of platforms like Twitter, Facebook and Instagram has exploded and museums are working hard to maximise this surge as well as battling to keep their audiences engaged. Amy Dawson, our Associate Digital Editor, spoke to Adam Kazari, the Social Media and Content Editor at the Royal Academy of Arts in London, about his viral Twitter campaigns, being headhunted by Elon Musk and why he asked the RA's followers to send in drawings of ham. So thanks for joining me, Adam, or should I say Your Majesty, since in an article (laughs) earlier this year, the New York Times named you the Museum World's King of Memes. Congratulations on the appointment. Thank you. I don't know if I can knight anyone as a knight of a meme yet, but I haven't tested (laughs) my authority for it. Well, we'll come back to who would be on your list of, uh, you know, first knighthoods. So let's start with kind of your social media ethos, because I've read that you've said before um, that good social media game is a lot more than just being funny, right? Definitely. Yeah, it's I, th- I think I had to say that because of what I've done at the Museum of English Rural Life um, in my old job, where that was a very funny Twitter account. And everyone suddenly, sent, suddenly started going, oh, we need to be funny on social media now, when actually you just need to be true to your mission and what your followers want. And that doesn't always have to be funny. Like the Auschwitz Memorial Twitter account can't just suddenly be joking all the time as a very extreme example. But you yourself, you you didn't train in social media. So what's kind of your background in terms of, you know, how did you come to be the king that you are today? Uh, Well, I guess it probably started when I first went to the Museum of English Royal Life, which is back in 2013 now, which feels like a completely different lifetime both personally and like the world but uh i went there to redevelop the whole museum work on a project doing the museum from the ground up new galleries new displays 
I think the whole ethos of the, dis the redisplay was to be less brown because the countryside is full of brown farming implements that no one seems to care about. And we wanted to bring the life and the colour back into it. But because we were closed, um, we couldn't speak to anyone. There was no audience coming into the museum. And the only way to talk to people was through social media, through blogs, um, and what we could get into the press. And it meant that I was given semi-control over the museum's social media accounts. And I suddenly realised that I much preferred talking to people through Twitter. Because when you look at a gallery label on the wall, you don't realise the absolute agonising hours and days people spend researching, focus grouping, debating over the tone and the language, who you should be pitching it to, until it ends up in this kind of bland mess, which does appeal to a broad amount of people. And that's what it should do if it's going to be there for years. But you can't get much nuance or personality into it. Whereas on Twitter or any other social media platform, you can be putting things out every day and having a conversation and a debate directly with people rather than just sticking the label up and hoping people get something out of it. You can immediately have a back and forth and have people share it and talk about it. So that's how I fell into social media, really, by accident. Um, and because of that, I went to the Bodleian Libraries, which is the University of Oxford's main research libraries, and started doing their social media when I realised that uh, even academics are people and they do sometimes like to uh, have fun and laugh at things. What? We, started, we started using <laughs> our medieval manuscripts, like animating them into almost Monty Python-esque scenes and just being a little bit less serious. And that went down quite well. So it went back to the Museum of English Short Life uh, on a big project trying to make us more digital, upskill ourselves in like digital marketing, that kind of thing. And that's when I did what the museum's probably best known for, which was... Uh, tweets about a big sheep saying, look at this absolute unit, which is just yes. this old farm animal. I want to talk about that. So obviously, you've come a long way from your first social media job um, at the Museum of English Rural Life, which is in Reading, which is just outside of London. Um, but as you were just saying, your first kind of Twitter breakthrough was this photograph of a particularly chunky sheep <laughs> from the um, archives of the museum, which went viral. So maybe you can talk Talk us through what happened, how you discovered this image and decided to what to post. Um, well, you've probably seen a lot of museums and galleries who, when there's like a day saying, um, like it's National Beer Day or it's National Go For A Walk Day, they're kind of desperately claw through their archives trying to find something um, to post in this kind of desperate bid for relevance. And I think the day I tweeted that, it was National Unicorn Day. Why is there a day for unicorns? I don't know. It is Scotland's animal, I think. It's like their patron animal. Again, I have no idea why. But <laughs> searching for horn in the museum archives, I was hoping to find the sheep with a horn growing out of its head. Because um, that happens sometimes. Like everything has happened in the countryside at some point. <laughs> and instead I found this big sheep, which is a Exmoor horn ram, I think. And it was just a really impressive beast. So... Um, I'd had this phrase, absolute unit, in my mind because I'd seen um, Scottish Twitter talking about it as a slang phrase. So I just said, look at this absolute unit. And then everyone looked at it and agreed and started making their own memes and it just kind of spread through the internet. But I think what was really beautiful about the sheep was um, afterwards we had our curator write blogs about livestock genetics, why that sheep was the size it was. It's like a mixture of 
the hardy Exmoor landscape who has been bred for mutton and for wool um, and getting into conversations with farmers about their own livestock. And it was just what we're always trying to do, which is make our collections relevant to something today. And it happened to be for that meme. But the meme also meant a lot of people learned a lot more about livestock genetics than I think they expected to. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there were statistics from the museum that showed that the visitor numbers year on year from, you know, pre-sheep, post-sheep, um, were, you know, very dramatic. So, you know, obviously the engagement that you were having on social media was making a big difference. Yeah, we had people from America and like really far-flung places coming to... You've got to imagine these people are on holiday and they're coming to Britain and they have London, they have Edinburgh, they have Stonehenge, they have the beautiful landscapes of Wales and countless other places and they carve out one day to get on Great Western Railway to go to Reading, to go to a small <laughs> museum about farming just because they saw a tweet about a big sheep and they found it funny. And then they actually absolutely loved the museum. I mean, it would be embarrassing if the museum was crap, but the museum is actually a fascinating place because the English countryside is so much of our history. So yeah, it's been a real boon to the museum and for institutions of our size, it's a way for us to kind of punch at the same weight as the big institutions. You just got to find like your right angle. And that's the thing is that actually you were able to repeat the same success with other funny or trending subjects. So I won't list them all, although I do encourage listeners to go and trawl through uh, Museum of English Rural Life's um, social media feed. Um, so there was an 18th century drawing of a chicken wearing trousers, which actually led Harry Potter writer J.K. Rowling to say that she would make make it into a character for a new novel, which is kind of crazy. Um, and then I don't there was think the, she has yet. Well, fingers crossed, it's in the making. Um, and then there was the BDE thread, and that's big duck energy, <laughs> um, which encouraged other institutions to send in images of ducks from their collection. Um, and these, they really picked up so much momentum. How is it that you choose your topics or themes to kind of, that will garner the most attention? Um, we're usually trying to find that sweet spot between what people like and react to online and what we have in our collections and archives and like collective knowledge in a museum or gallery. And it's not particularly rocket science because when you look at social media, people like interesting, unique stories. Um, they like to be entertained. They like to laugh. They like to uh, emote, no, empathize um, with other people's stories and experiences and just to find out interesting new things. But very often it's difficult to know how to pitch it. And you, you've almost got to wait for the right time when the mood is okay on social media. Like it's been very difficult to get away with lighthearted things in the past few weeks because it's been an absolute train wreck um, across the world. So briefly, before you moved to the RA, you did a stint working on Tesla's social media at the invitation of Elon Musk himself, who also has a reputation for being big on Twitter. Um, what happened there? I can tell you how it sort of started to happen and then I think my NDA kicks in. Okay, but, um, <laughs> One day Elon Musk somehow found our picture of the sheep and he, I think he was talking about some big plane and he said it's an absolute unit and then someone said change your profile picture to the sheep. 
So he did. And then someone told us it had happened. So we changed our picture to his face and changed our name to the Muskiem of Elonglish rural life or something stupid. And then got into a bit of a conversation with him. And um, after that, we got into another conversation and uh, I was offered a job at Tesla, uh, where I was for a few months before I jumped back into the warm embrace of <laughs> museums and galleries. I, I um, don't even know how to drive. So... <laughs> Um, you're a regular blogger and in your last post you talked about your transition to the RA um, after coming particularly from coming from smaller institutions um, and you mentioned that it was difficult to establish the right tone which you've touched on already um, in the beginning of starting there and that there were some dissenting followers can you talk a little bit more about that yeah I mean the Museum of English Rural Life it's a small museum for a niche audience which didn't have that massive a following online so what we managed to do there was almost wipe the slate clean and start with a tone and voice which works really well for Twitter and works really well for the kind of things in our collections. And we could do that because it was basically a blank slate for people in the UK, let alone the world. But places like the Royal Academy and the British Museum and Tate, they have, uh, I don't know whether to call it baggage, but they're known entities. So you have... Like with the RA, you've got artists who already know what it is. It's been around since 1768. Uh, you have the visiting public. You have art historians. Everyone has some kind of relationship to the Royal Academy and more importantly, kind of has an idea of what it's meant to be for them. Like some people think it should be this serious bulwark of um, art representing art and artists, which it should be. Some people will probably want it to be a bit more loose um, probably more in line with its rebranding for its 250th anniversary. And the tricky thing that people doing social media like me have got to do is find that balance between what works for like the history and context of somewhere like the Royal Academy and what works on social media, where even though the Royal Academy is a well-known institution in London, still is probably not very well-known to the mass public in the rest of the world and probably in the UK as well. So if you're going good then with a look how important we are, look at all this lovely art, you should like it because we tell you you should like it. It's not going to work. But if you go in more like the mole approach and just make jokes all the time, people will be like, why are you kind of like dumbing down the Royal Academy and why are you making it look so stupid when it's this serious thing which we know and love? And it's really tricky finding that sweet spot where you can still bring in new people by making things relevant to them and the way they speak, whether that's through humour or by jumping on current trends. Like yesterday we did the, uh, you see, they botched another painting in Spain. Yeah, they tried we to restore. about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we were asking people to try and do their own restorations of the painting, which has kind of devolved into this funny thread. But I have had some people already commenting on that, like you should be defending the sanctity of art. And it's like, oh, okay. But there's got to be a way of, like, not disrespecting art and artists while still making it accessible. And it's just finding the right way of doing that. For sure. And social media has a reputation for uh, being a place that's often full of negativity and, and trolls, people leaving kind of very nasty comments. What's the best way to deal with a troll, would you say? And have you got any examples of times you've experienced it on accounts you've managed? Um, well, at the extreme end today, I had to block a white supremacist 
And they were saying, again, you should be defending Western art. And when it's a case like that, we simply block um, because those kind of conversations usually don't have any worth to them because you just end up in a flame war where you get deep into a debate which isn't going to convince them. But there is an argument to getting into those sort of debates with people who aren't just like trolls with faceless accounts and anime profile pictures. If it means that more people uh, are educated into an opinion. So that sounds like indoctrination, but we want to be a place for debates, but we don't want to pander to a racist and extremist sort of thing. And that's very often a case by case basis. When we did the Black Lives Matter blackout picture for Blackout Tuesday, there was one person who said they were going to unfollow our account because we were standing in solidarity against racism. And in that case, we did just a simple waving goodbye emoji. And I've seen quite a few other places where they've taken that stand quite publicly and people have celebrated it. And it's kind of putting a mark in the sand of saying, we're an institution with these values, you can take it or leave it kind of thing. So I wanted to talk about at the end of your last blog post, which was in February, um, you ended with the line, I'm looking forward to a normal but productive 2020. How's that working out? <laughs> um, it's been productive. It hasn't been normal at all. <laughs> I think we were just about to start getting into a new strategy of where we can go with digital content at the Royal Academy. And then obviously the pandemic hit. Um, a lot of people got furloughed at the Academy and we had to pivot entirely from, I mean, the Royal Academy is a lot of things, oldest art school in Britain, um, great learning and education program, loads of events, but we're probably best known for our massive blockbuster exhibitions. And then suddenly we're in this position where that was all taken away from us. And we can still talk about those exhibitions, but no one can actually come and see them. And we're kind of, I wouldn't say driven because I found it really positive, but we had to focus much more on the mission of what the Royal Academy is meant to stand for, which is representing art and artists, championing art and artists, and trying to encourage more people to do art themselves. So it's... um. It's been very abnormal, but we've learned a lot of things of how to do those things, I think. So can you tell me a little bit about um, some of the digital and social media campaigns that you've been doing during the pandemic um, that you're particularly proud of that, or that have done really well? Yeah, um, I mean, when we locked down and I think you could almost hear the... Uh, the sweat dripping down everyone that worked in museums and galleries faces because they're like, what the hell do we do now when our entire purpose is meant to be like bringing people in, getting them to enjoy art and culture and spend their money. And now we can't do any of those things. And everyone reached first for like, um, let's just put it online. Let's just put it all online as it is and see what happens. And we did that as well. But to be fair, it's because, I mean, we all had this moment of, introspection and we're like what do people now need how can we best you know help people when they're feeling fearful they want a bit of escapism and they still want to enjoy arts and culture in their own home and the easiest way of doing that was let's give people tours of the exhibitions they now can't visit and that was particularly important for us because we have so many friends at the world academy so we put picasso and paper online we uh filmed it just before lockdown luckily uh, we also filmed our Leon Spillier exhibition and there were just, it's basically like a perfect gallery experience where there's no people. You get to look at the art for as long as you like. 
and you can have a cup of tea while you're doing it and not get told off by a security guard. Um, and they did really well. Like, even though uh, I just said it was a bit, like, basic, um, like, as a need, but it's what people wanted. So I'm really proud of, like, the video person in our team for dealing with that so fast and getting it out so fast because it was a hell of a lot of work. It's like think how big a blockbuster exhibition is and trying to condense it into a video is insane. Um, but we've also been running this daily doodle campaign, which started, did you see this, where we asked people to draw us a ham? Yes, I did see the very creative images of hams that came yeah. flooding in. The ham thing was probably the most, uh, it was a lot like what I was doing at the Museum of English Real Life, where it was almost like a throwaway comment just to see what would happen. So we just asked people to draw us the best ham. And then like hundreds of people doodled us their hams and sent them in and did them in all these strange scenarios like hams uh, isolating at home, had a lot of hams with faces. And uh, I think that got over 6,000 likes or something. But it came from a real need where we wanted people to get involved with art at home. And if I mean, the amount of people that came to me at the academy and said, how can we do Joe Wicks? but with art and because we don't have someone, I mean, Joe Wicks has been doing what he's been doing for years. He's a personality and that takes a lot of skill to do that on camera and to get people involved in that way. Um, so we didn't really have Joe Wicks on staff. Um, but what we could do is find something like low entry and everyone doodles. Even if someone doesn't consider themselves an artist, they probably doodled in the margins doing stupid little things on their work papers. So we started asking people to doodle every day and, um, We've almost got this nice little cool community of artists and um, amateur artists and people haven't picked up a pencil in years doodling us something new every day. And I'm hoping to keep that going for as long as I can because it's just a nice little nugget of art in people's feeds every day. Well, talking about that, I wanted to ask if you've got any um, art world social media accounts that you've been particularly enjoying since lockdown because one of my favourites has been um, the National Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City, um, where if you don't know, those of you listening, a security guard named Tim took over their Twitter account and had absolutely no idea what he was doing. And what came out of it was really wholesome attempts um, at kind of showing what was on display in the museum. Um, And it was very endearing, and he kept signing off every... Um, tweet with cheers Tim and he kept like typing out the word hashtag instead of using the symbol because he didn't understand how it worked Um, so that's something that I've been really enjoying have you come across any accounts that have you know caught your attention I absolutely loved what Tim did at the Cowboy Museum he's one of my favorites but um, I also remember very early on there were penguins I think that were given tours of museums I can't remember yeah, which one it was. We wrote an article about uh, an instance where um, the Kansas City Zoo penguins took a field trip to the Nelson Atkins Museum and the video was went viral. It's so cute. And it's again one of those things where they must have said, oh, we have intergalleries, we know the zoo, why don't we get penguins to just wander around and look at art? Which is just... Again, it's one of those things which isn't necessarily teaching you much, but it is just something everyone can engage with. And you need those sort of things without being boring all the time. Um, I think the Met's also been doing a great job. They've been doing a lot of um, challenges 
and they've been doing fun things with how they communicate as well, just talking to people. Have you seen the curator battles from Yorkshire Museum? Yes, and they're trying to get people to show like their most crazy items or their ugliest items. Yeah, it kind of taps into that big duck energy thing at the Museum of English Royal Life, uh, where people just love... It's so hard to find out what's in museums half the time because it's all put away behind glass or in storage. And just seeing all of these curators and museum people saying, we have this weird thing, or we have this weird thing, and getting into this trance of one-upmanship, of having the weirdest thing or the best cats, or I think they did the best witchcraft thing, that sort of thing. And it, you just get to learn just how diverse our history and culture are from all these weird little museums pitching in with their odd cats. <laughs> and in the UK now, uh, we're about to, we're easing our way out of lockdown. Um, do you have any special plans for social media once the museum reopens? Um, that would be telling because it might give you a bit too much idea of what the Royal Academy is going to uh, do when it reopens. But um we had the Prime Minister's statement only yesterday, didn't we, that places like museums and galleries can open from the 4th of July, is it? And it's definitely going to be a shift because we've gone from trying to keep pe people entertained at home to now trying to encourage people to safely come back and enjoy galleries. But it's not going to be the same experience as it was because it's going to be socially distanced. There's going to be queues, sanitisation stations. It's probably going to be a gradual phased reopening rather than just here's it. here it was exactly as it was when you remember it. And I think a lot of what we're going to do is actually going to have to be reassurance and trying not to be too over-eager to say, come in, but more like, come in if you're feeling well, feeling safe. Here's how we're going to keep you safe. And here's how to enjoy the art in actually the ideal gallery conditions. Because again, there's going to be not as much, you're going to have social distancing. You'll actually be able to see the artwork just by yourself, which is a rarity in central London exhibitions, I think. And some people jump at that chance, but it's up to us to make sure that it's safe. I mean, museums and galleries are one of the few places left where it's kind of open to everybody. Sometimes if you can afford the price, but usually it's it's one of the few civic spaces left to us. And I think museums and galleries have a part to play in like bringing us back into communal living again. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Oh, no worries. You can follow Adam's posts on Twitter and Facebook at Royal Academy and on Instagram at Royal Academy Arts. And his personal Twitter is at Adam Kazari. That's K-O-S-Z-A-R-Y. We'll speak to the artist Rita Keegan in a moment. But first, here are some of the top stories on our website this week. French art police have arrested five art experts this week as part of an investigation into the widespread trafficking of looted antiquities from the Near and Middle East, Vincent Noss writes. According to a legal source, those arrested include a retired curator from the Louvre in Paris. The same source says the case concerns the sale of hundreds of pieces for tens of millions of euros, which were allegedly looted from Egypt, Syria and Yemen, as well as zones in Libya under Islamic State control. Thousands of lecturers at arts universities across London are facing unemployment as colleges plan to axe or postpone casual contracts over the summer, writes Annie Shaw. 
For instance, the senior management team at Goldsmiths University of London is due to let 472 casual contracts expire this summer, accounting for 40% of the overall workforce. Many of them are artists whose work has been shown in high-profile British and international art institutions. Figures collected by the Justice for Workers campaign group suggest that around 75% of those being laid off are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, and an overwhelming majority are women. But Goldsmiths disputes this figure. According to a spokesman, 22% of associate lecturers and graduate trainee tutors across the college identify as from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, although the spokesman acknowledges that this data does not cover all fixed-term staff. Goldsmiths is now engaged in a wider analysis, he adds. And finally, there was lots of news of museum reopenings in the UK and US this week. UK museums can reopen from the 4th of July, although few are expected to do so that early and many have not yet announced their plans. The Wallace Collection has confirmed the date of its reopening, however. Franz House's Laughing Cavalier will have an audience again on the 15th of July. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York will open its doors on the 29th of August. You can read these and a wealth of other stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get at the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. In advance of one, a global sale of the 20th century on the 10th of July, preview the art of this unprecedented event online. Featuring masterworks by Picasso, Liechtenstein and Zhao Wuqi, among other greats of the era, this reimagined global auction experience will take place in Hong Kong, Paris, London and New York in simultaneous live and online sessions, led by Christie's principal auctioneers. Browse the sale, explore Christie's enhanced virtual galleries and read more about the highlights at christie's.com one. Welcome back. Now, how does it feel to be an artist gearing up for a major exhibition and have that moment cruelly taken away by the coronavirus? That's what Rita Keegan has experienced over recent months. Keegan, born in the Bronx in New York but based in London since the late 1970s, is an artist, lecturer and archivist who was a key member of the Black Arts Movement in London in the 1980s. She was a member of the Black Women Artists Collective, involved in the important Brixton Art Gallery and the project Community Copy Art, and she established the Women Artists of Colour Index, an archive of slides and papers relating to black and other minority ethnic artists. She had opened an archive display relating to these activities at the South London Gallery in February, and this was intended as a prelude to an exhibition of her work that was due to open in May. Of course, it didn't. And now the show has been delayed until May 2021, and the South London Gallery, like many museums and galleries, has not yet confirmed when it will reopen its doors. I spoke to Keegan about this experience and about the fact that there could be no better moment for a show of her still relatively little-known work in the UK. Now, one thing we haven't done yet on this podcast is explore what it's been like for artists to be gearing up for these quite important moments in their career and then to have suddenly those curtailed. And this is postponed until next year. But can you explain something of how it feels when you've made all that preparation for an exhibition and then suddenly that's taken away from you? Well, it's it's mixed emotion. First off, you're full of the hysteria and the angst of getting the work together. And then then there's that moment when you're not sure if it's actually going to happen. There was a a moment of limbo, especially in March when the lockdown first started, um, because you you didn't know how long it was going to continue. Also, I had been looking forward to the two and a half months to, to actually 
finish the stuff. We were going to do workshops and things to be part of it. Half of the show was already collected. Things were going to be framed. Um, also, I was going to include some of my uncle's work. Uh, his name was Keith Simon, and he was an artist here in the in the 50s and 60s. And I was actually quite shocked at how we had uh, parallel lives, even if we hadn't necessarily intersected. Um, so we were thinking about getting some of his work from America. So obviously the idea of getting just, uh, you know, two or three pieces from America became impossible to do. It was just sort of like waiting to exhale. <laughs> I'm sure. And of course, apart from anything else, it's the disruption to your your everyday working life as well, because here you were gearing up for a show and that's your plan for, you know, the foreseeable future, the coming months. And then suddenly you're in a position where that's disrupted. Did you feel that you were able to return to something like your normal practice when you weren't gearing up for another show or, or were you in in, in certain sense in, in, in sort of limbo? I was in limbo. I mean, I had even bought a year plan for this year because there were so many things that were going to happen. Because it wasn't just the exhibition, we were producing a, a book. Um, one of the people I've been working with, Matt Hale, we were, um, and Goldsmiths Press was going to produce a book. It was going to come out after the exhibition, but now everything's going to run in tandem. Uh, and also the archive was getting um, organized to eventually be housed at Goldsmiths. So the exhibition was one third of the project. But that being the case, everything had to go on hold. It didn't take long for us to figure out that the exhibition was going to be postponed and we had to figure out when was best to do it. At one point, we were talking about um, the possibility of doing it in in June, um, but I thought that people would not be ready to come back out, and the last place they would want to do is is go into a gallery. So when they suggested the following year, I thought that that would work for me, and um, it would give enough people enough space, and the world would become relatively normal. Indeed. Now. Um, can you tell me something about the negotiations you've had with the with with the gallery? Because of course they're they're in limbo as much as you are. There's different guidance from government. There's still even even to this day we're not sure when British museums are reopening. Um, but obviously you know there's a process now where the gallery are getting ready to start reopening. It it, it must have been really interesting to be talking to them and 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 obviously they need to look after you as as, as an artist in their program. Has there been a sort of sense of community between the the institution and you as an artist? Do you do you feel like there's been a support network there for you? I I feel the people at Southland and Gallery have been really good. I mean Actually, the exhibition is still up because <laughs> everybody closed the doors and that's where everything stood. Uh, and um, we've been in contact with them. And uh, Southland Gallery has been very good. But it, because we are all so uncertain, it's really unclear what kind of support anyone can even give each other. That's right. And, and and I suppose one of the key things about all of this is that it seems to me that your work is so immaculately timed for our present moment. I mean, actually, even before 
any of the horrific incidents in the states with George Floyd and the, and and the this sort of re-energized Black Lives Matter moment. Your work, both in terms of your your media, um, your commitment to community projects, and because of the the, the context in in relation to Black Lives Matter and and um, the ongoing problems of institutional racism, etc. Can you say something about about your feelings about that? Because it, you know. It's, it seems like this is a great moment for your work to be exposed to a broader public. Well, I have happened to be a person that has uh, the mixed blessing of my life is to be at the right place at the right time or the wrong time. So growing up in in New York in the, I was born in the late 40s, so I'm a, I guess, technically a baby boomer. Um, and um, experiencing issues of the civil rights movement, uh, anti-war movement. I moved to San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s. I, you know, so I, I obviously there were the anti-war protests, and you know, I, I seem to have spent a large, large part of my life marching, and um, and experiencing the world around me. Which doesn't mean I wasn't living in. I have Hollywood years, rock and roll years, and things like that. But that <laughs> that I do digress. Um, uh, you know, but I have met interesting people and been in interesting places. They haven't always been fun, um, but you know, I do bear witness to my times and my place. And you become a witness, but you also need to participate. I came to Britain in the early 80s, late 70s. So Margaret Thatcher had become prime minister. But also one of the things that I found really interesting here was um, the GLC and how it gave support to the arts. This is the Greater London Council, which was which was run by Ken Livingston in the early 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and also... Um, Greater London Arts and um, Ilia, which was about education throughout London and being involved with the Brixton Art Gallery. I was working with lots of different types of artists, performance artists, photographers, painters, and we had three railway arches in Brixton. And uh, so there was a wide range of people, but also you know, it was it was very. My dad has a barn. Let's put on an exhibition, and we had to put in. You know, we thought we had to do a show every month, and uh, so we had women's exhibitions, black art exhibitions, gay and lesbian exhibitions, and it was you know. So this is all in the early eighties. Uh, so I met a diverse range of people. And um, quite often I assisted in, and showed in, in many of the shows. But we also had to do many of the tasks. And I guess that's where, once you learn to produce a show and demystify that whole process, it, it becomes a very different way that you negotiate the art world. And um, we would, by with the help of of education officers and places that Ilya supported, you could get things photocopied 
and used the photocopier really expensively. So we produced catalogs and A3 and A4 posters and A5 catalogs. And so you spent your time collating and working on having things to hand out. And very early on, maybe it's from feminist practice, maybe it's from black arts practice, you learned that it didn't matter how fabulous the show, if you didn't have the ephemera, it was hard to say that you existed. It's very easy to be written out of history if you don't have those pieces of paper. I'm really intrigued particularly by the community copy art, which seems to me like, you know, this is basically this sort of where you created uh, access for a community to photocopiers. And this would be sort of which was was sort of part activism, part art project. Right. It sort of sat somewhere between those two things. It, It was, you know, if you can have collective anarchism. I think that's probably what it's about. And it was making sure that people had the facilities to produce their own um, their own copy. Um, back in the day, if you wanted something photocopied, you generally had to, there were places that you had to hand over your piece of paper and they would photocopy it for you. But um, one of the people that was involved in the beginning of copy art and a group of other people managed to talk somebody into giving them a lease for a photocopier. But it was a place where all sorts of people could come and produce their work, but also artists could come and use it. And what was great about it is you could produce work with spontaneity unlike when you're doing printmaking where you actually have to wait for things to dry. So you wouldn't even know until you actually got the piece out what was going to happen. And um, I was able to produce A4s and put them in a folder and either collage them together at a later date, but also I could make my work quite, for me, quite containable with you know bad issues of housing and squatting and things like that you don't necessarily have a studio to to spread out your work so you have to find a way to work that um that fits where you are it's hannah hawk cut up on the kitchen table (laughs) so it was it was a great venue for so many people to come in and use the the equipment for not very much money and of course you were a pioneer of digital art um, from that period onwards, you, you became particularly involved with computers in the 90s, right? And in fact, the, the nascent internet at that point. And it's, it, it, I'd read an interview with you in which you said that it was a sort of natural choice in terms of new media. And in fact, for a lot of black artists, that, was, that seemed like a new territory in which you could make a real mark, given that in some ways the traditional media was somehow exclusive. And, it, and, and I, I wonder if you could just say more about that. Did, was, that was that how it panned out for you, do you feel? Well, I I trained as a painter and it was, you know, and I always painted and I still do get my watercolors out when nobody's looking. And (laughs) but if you were applying for a grant for an exhibition, you couldn't get a grant for painting, but you could get one for doing an installation. So that, you know, that was part of it. But also, I think a friend of mine who I knew quite well from copy art, Sally Mould, was working in a place doing um, 
computer um, design and stuff. And she said that she thought that my work would lend itself to that media. And so I, you know, I've always not been afraid to experiment with different media. So I went there and, you know, I, I found it really exciting. Also, I've always been interested in film, but the problem about filmmaking, you couldn't do it on your own. You needed sound person, you needed somebody with the camera. It's very difficult to explain now when you all you need is your phone. But you, you know, you couldn't do that. <laughs> there weren't, you know, there was no, no mobile phones, and um, let alone ones that could take pictures. So you had to have it had to be so many extensions of you to do what you needed to do, and um, and on the computer I could control my time, uh, how long I wanted the image for. I could colorize it. I could do lots of different things. But also, I think the very nature of multimedia made it very attractive to a lot of people of color because you could include more than one screen. You could include different sounds. You could um, you could take in images. And also, the same people who were being art critics had to suspend their belief to actually view your work. And the bottom line is they were more seduced by the the medium than they were by the images. I, I was on a, a start the week and they basically asked me about the medium and it didn't matter that I was using the same images that I had always used, but all of a sudden the the medium trumped my images. That's really interesting. And do you think that's about some sort of um, discomfort for those people to talk about the major issues that you were dealing with with in the work? Well, I think if technology is sexier than issues, <laughs> you know, and it's easy to think that there's no issues in technology. We all know now that there is. But, you know, I used to call it, you know, the uh, the ultra white man media outrageously expensive and immediately obsolete. Yes, and you know it, it 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 was all that and it is all that. I didn't realize how much I was right, but strangely enough, it doesn't cost more to kit yourself out with everything you need now than it did twenty years ago. The same 10,000 pounds can buy you an incredible amount of digital kit. And it would have bought you that then. Of course, the kit wouldn't have had as much memory. But in that sense, you feel like multimedia is now a more genuinely democratic discipline than it perhaps was in the earlier days. Well, I think it is much more because we have, you know, just by the nature of what your your phone can do and what sound can do. You know, I'm not talking quality. I'm not talking content. But the revolution that's happening at the moment wouldn't be happening without digital. I mean, they were wrong. The revolution will be televised. It'll just be on your phone. 
absolutely right. And that's what I mean really about when I said earlier about how I feel like your work really speaks to this moment, because when I think about what's going on, yes, it's an, in a digital format in terms of people's phones, it's phone footage, it's uh, memes and things like that. But a lot of what you and many artists around you were doing in the Brixton Art Gallery back in the 1980s was an advanced form of, of kind of art meeting activism, wasn't it? And it was dealing with a very difficult period particularly in Brixton relating to uh, race and institutionalized racism and the police force and so and so on and so forth it was so many of those issues that you were dealing with in your work and the artists around you were dealing with are absolutely pertinent to this moment yes they are but you know the, it was not unusual to do issue-based work there was a minor strike and all those and and issues of of, of visibility and disability and all you need to do is change the object of the issue, but the words remain the same. Whether you know whether it's race, gender, or um, class, you know. But also, I think if you if you experience the lack of visibility, then it's important for you to be to create your own visibility, and you do care about the external but um it, you're creating the work for your own you know you're you're not necessarily expecting the art world to take up what you're doing and um because you're excluded from it anyway but of course we began this conversation talking about an institutional show and it's one of the interesting things that in this in recent years there's definitely been an enhanced interest in that in particularly in that early 80s period many of those artists are, have had big shows you you were due to have this south london gallery show and in fact institutions have began to collect more and more material from that period do you feel that there is at last a sort of sense of acknowledgement? Do you feel there's all? Do you think that 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 acknowledgement has always been there, or do you feel that there is a genuine uptick in this sort of sense in which, you know, a, a, a particular moment in British culture is actually getting its due? Well, I was uh, initially very happy to show at the South London Gallery because they always have had a history of showing a diverse range of people. I remember going to Donald Rodney's show. Yeah, you know, so. So because they, they, I was happy to participate, but you were more likely to have exhibitions in public galleries. And most of the people I, I knew had exhibitions, but I know very few people of color that have, a, that have gone to private galleries because mm. the private galleries don't very rarely pick up the artist's work. It's only now that they're starting to, or I would say, Post Yinka. So you meet Yinka Shonibari, the British artist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yinka Shonibari and and also, I mean, Sonia Boyce was was picked up quite early. But you have a separation historically in this country between private and public, hmm. and um, you you might have shown a lot in the public galleries, but um, whether you had any kind of support or whether the private galleries felt that they could show your work or sell your work is, uh, is a whole nother issue. Well, 
Rita, we look forward to at last seeing this exhibition in Me May too. In, in, <laughs> in May 2021. But good luck with it all before then. And, and um, yeah, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. The South London Gallery has not yet confirmed when it will reopen. Visit southlondongallery.org to check. Now for the latest in our Lonely Work series, in which we explore art in museums that have closed because of COVID-19. This week, it's Julia Payton-Jones, the Senior Global Director of Special Projects at Gallery Tadeus Ropak, and of course, former director of the Serpentine Galleries. She tells us about a drawing from around 1510 to 1513 by Leonardo, called A Cloudburst of Material Possessions, or The Reign of Tools. You can see an image of the drawing if you go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. Julia, I have to admit, when we asked you to do this, I was imagining you might choose a work of contemporary or modern art, but you've chosen a Leonardo, so I'm intrigued. Tell, tell me why this one. Well, I mean, I have this principle. When somebody asks me to think of something or suggest something or do something, um, I kind of close my eyes and I wait until inspiration strikes me. Usually it's quick, by the way. It's not <laughs> 10 hours in the bath, <laughs> um, worrying with a wet towel around my head. And... Interestingly, this Leonardo drawing came to mind and it was completely unexpected, uh, as you might imagine. Um, However, it's a drawing I really, really love. It takes me back to a sort of former incarnation when I worked at the Hayward Gallery and I assisted the great Leonardo scholar Martin Kemp, who was a curator with Jane Roberts, who's keeper of the Royal Collection of the Leonardo exhibition at the Hayward called Artist, Scientist and Inventor. And I had the enormous privilege of holding these beautiful drawings in my hand. I mean, can you imagine? And I really, I really can't answer the question why, except to say drawing is very, it's always been something that fascinates me. And as I began to think about it, I thought, my goodness me, this is, it feels so incredibly timely. Um, the work itself is really s- small. I mean, it's uh, 11 11 and a half by 11 centimetres. Um, you know, there is... I, obviously, I'm not a Leonardo scholar, scholar I should um, hasten to add, but it somehow feels incredibly appropriate for this time, this time of great confusion and strangeness and complication. Yeah, let's, let's, let's describe it, because it is so, in a way, it's among his most unusual drawings, I would say. I mean, God, he, you know, that extraordinary wealth of images that he produced, it must be one of the most unusual, mustn't it? Well, yes, and it wasn't until um, I began thinking about what I might say uh, in our conversation that I did a little bit of research, and apparently the exhibition, the Hayward exhibition that I worked on, kind of revealed this drawing that was hitherto not widely known, and it was particularly, you know, artists that then um, there were a couple of shows that focused on it. And I always thought that it was called Rain of Tools, but in fact, it's called Cloudburst of Material Possessions, 1506 to um, 1512 uh, circa. And it quite simply is a torrent of objects falling to the earth from storm clouds. And the, the objects that are falling are legible. You know, there are bottles, there are rakes, there is bagpipes, there's glasses. I mean, they seem sort of contemporary in feel. Um, written below 
is this in his wonderful script is Oh Human Misery, How Many Things You Must Serve for Money. And written above is um, on this Adam and on that Eve. And it's sort of it's it's one of those things that's been endlessly interpreted, isn't it? And you, you know, it's it the most obvious thing is it's an allegory of the human, you know, as 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 that lament suggests, it's a sort of allegory against materialism. But but there's also a lion in there. Yes, so you know, it... <laughs> who knew? But also the other thing which is so fantastic is on at the back of the drawing there are six lines of household expenses for the fragment of the seventh, which are not by Leonardo. I mean, it's hilarious. I love this idea that somebody thought, oh, what's this old bit of paper? Never mind, I'll do my shopping list. But <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. What, what I love about it is it suggests that he was taken, rather like you when you were, you were thinking of what, which work to talk about, he was taken by a whim. He had this, it, it was almost like he had a vision that he wanted to record and was sort of amused by it. Because as you say, there's wonderful detail in the objects. He seems to have relished this idea of describing all these things tumbling from the skies. Yes, and also the, the kind of the, the, the way he's divided up the picture plane is kind of interesting because the top of the, the top of the drawing is really empty. There's a sort of strange, more looks like more char- charcoal-y kind of shape, which is inexplicable to me. There's one eight four, then there's a line about Adam and Eve. But it really the drawing starts not at the top of the page, but I would say probably you know a quarter of the way down. And um but it's what's so strange about it is how clear all the objects are. And I love this idea of objects falling from the sky somehow. I mean, his cataclysmic storm uh, drawings um, that seem to have been a favourite subject matter in the last decade of his life. There are so many sort of great tempests and storms and um, studies. I think he was working on this treatise of painting which was never finished and his fascination with destruction it seems so much about a drawing for our times and um it's you know we're living it seems to me at least that we're living through this this these cataclysmic times they're unexpected they're unfamiliar and the human condition whether it's relates to our day-to-day lives our health our well-being there's tremendous uncertainty about the future. And Leonardo seems to describe the landscape in this changing situation that we find ourselves in. And it's as if the world as we knew it, this sort of tempest that's come through this drawing and, and changed everything. You know, all the things that we thought that were constant and, and kind of in a way reliable, they've all gone. It's a sort of, it's a cataclysmic, reassessment um, of the material side of our lives. And I think one of the things about this period of lockdown that has affected everybody, whatever their situation, sometimes really tragically and other times people have talked about it as a moment where they've really flowered under this period of of quietness. Mm. You know, it, it is, nobody could have predicted the six months that we'd have been doing this. And indeed, if I'd said to you, Ben, you know, we're all, this is what's going to happen, you'd have thought that I was mad. So it really feels like a drawing for our time, as I've said. And of course, Leonardo lived in very traumatic and uh, cataclysmic times, didn't he? So do you think this is a reflection of that to a certain extent? 
Well, yes, because, you know, in 1500, the, the, the monks of Ronarola preached the end of the world and organized bonfires of the vanities in which paintings, books, dresses, mirrors, makeup, musical instruments, amongst many other things, were destroyed by public fires. So it seemed, you know, he was, everything was being realigned at that time. And, you know, the metaphysical or metaphorical storm um, raging in the landscape, it was also raging within society in, and also as it is for all of us now as we come to terms with what is so um, often described as a new reality in so many different ways. And also it's not... This isn't local. This isn't local to, the, to Britain or local to Europe or local to the US. It is um, a democratic, complete change and a disruption of such epic proportions. It would have been hard to conceive it even six months ago. Yeah. And, and uh, it's another of those drawings by Leonardo. Some of them feel very much of their time, but this is one of those images that you can imagine a 20th century artist making this drawing, right? Yes. So you, you, you feel like, you know, sometimes you feel Leonardo very present in our modern lives, right? He's, he somehow has this ability to transcend time. Yes, definitely. And also he writes so blooming well. I don't know if you've read what he, he writes about storms. It says, let there be represented the summit of a rugged mountain with valleys surrounding its base. And on its sides, let the surface of the soil be seen to slide, together with the small roots of the bushes, denuding great portions of the surrounding rocks. And let the mountains, as they are laid bare, reveal the deep fissures made in them by earthquakes, ancient earthquakes. And into the depth of some valley may have fallen the fragments of a mountain, forming a shore to the swollen waters of its river, which, having already burst its banks, will rush on in monstrous waves, and the greatest will strike upon and destroy the walls of the cities and farmhouses in the valley. Trees and plants must be bent to the ground, almost as if they would follow the course of the gale, with their branches twisted out of their natural growth and their leaves tossed and turned about. Of the men who are there, some must have fallen to the ground, and be entangled in their garments, and hardly to be recognised for the dust, while those who remain standing may be behind some tree, with their arm around it so the wind may not tear them away. Others, with their hand over their eyes for the dust, bending to the ground with their clothes and hair streaming in the wind. I mean, my goodness me, how gorgeously poetic is that? Julia, what a fantastic way to end. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Dear Ben, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You can find out more about the Leonardo drawing at the Royal Collections website. That's rct.uk. And if you want to hear more from Julia Payton-Jones, she presents Tea with Julia live on Tadeus Ropak's Instagram at Tadeus Ropak every Saturday morning at 11am GMT. It's a series of conversations with artists, collectors, directors, curators and philanthropists broadcast live from their homes. Among the guests have been, or will be, Nikki Wilson, the founder of Jupiter Artland, artist Gilbert and George and the architect Annabel Seldorf. <music> 
And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to the art newspaper on the website, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage, and please also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David's also the editor. Thanks to Amy and Adam, to Rita and to Julia, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.